You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia discuss the primary care issues that are on their mind and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and I'm talking today about peanut allergy with Dr. David Hill, who is a senior fellow in the Division of Allergy and Immunology, also at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Thank you so much for joining me today, David. It's my pleasure to be here, Katie. Great. So we're going to be talking a lot about uh, one particular trial, so I'm going to give a little bit of background. In 2015, the New England Journal of Medicine published the LEAP or the Learning Early About Peanut Allergy Trial, which was a randomized controlled clinical trial to determine the best strategy to prevent peanut allergy in young children. This trial looked at children between four to 11 months of age who are identified as being high risk for peanut allergy based on an existing egg allergy and or severe eczema. They found that in high-risk infants, sustained consumption of peanut beginning in the first 11 months of life was highly effective in preventing the development of peanut allergy. We're going to talk about how the LEAP trial changed our clinical practice and what's new since it was published. So David, how prevalent are peanut allergies in children and why does it seem that they're getting more prevalent over the past decade? Yeah, this is a really um, uh, an important point in our field and obviously we're in a moment where um, evidence suggests that we need to be changing our practice slightly. Um, peanut allergy, uh, in particular, uh, reps- represents about 2% of the overall uh, food allergies. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are sort of the traditional IgE-mediated anaphylactic food allergies that we commonly think about. Mm-hmm. Um, and food allergy overall is somewhere between 4 and 8% uh, nationally, depending on the study that you, that you look at. And you're absolutely right that it seems that the incidence of these allergies is increasing um, and potentially also the severity. Mm-hmm. Um, there's many hypotheses as to why that could be the case. Um, the hygiene hypothesis uh, is one of sort of the early ones that, um, that I think uh, has a lot of, um, of good evidence behind it. And that sort of suggests that as we've um, changed our lifestyle from one that was more agriculturally based, mm-hmm. um, that might have had different exposures to bacteria or parasites, um, to a lifestyle that's, um, for a large majority of the country, um, more urban, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and um, this is also a trend sort of throughout the world, um, that our immune system uh, is sort of taking time to adjust um, to that uh, change in stimulus, and that um, and with that change, uh, we're seeing um, sort of uh, uh, unintended responses to inert particles in our environment, and mm-hmm. that's what allergens essentially are. Right. Um, we actually did a study last year out of our division where we compared the uh, incidence and prevalence of food allergies in our own CHOP mm-hmm. uh, patient population with the national numbers. And so we can actually say uh, with a reasonable amount of certainty how prevalent food allergies are in our population. Mm-hmm. And what we found was that at CHOP overall, about 6.7% uh, of our patients will have a food allergy at some point mm-hmm. um, in their childhood. So we're in that 4 to 8% that you We're mentioned. right in that 4 to 8%, a little bit on the higher end. Mm-hmm. And the same goes for uh, peanut, uh, where it was about 2% overall. We're looking at about 2.6% mm-hmm. at shop. Interesting. 
Great. And that was all of our patients across the network? That was a primary care cohort of uh, upwards of 200,000 patients. Wow. Um, and so we have a, a pretty good estimate of, of food allergies and what it looks like in our, in our patients. Great. So one of the important things to understand about the LEAP trial is that it stratifies kids with severe eczema as being this high-risk group. So I see a lot of eczema. How, how do I know if it's severe? Yes, absolutely. And I think this is the most subjective aspect of the new uh, guidelines. Mm -hmm. uh, what is severe eczema um, and what are some criteria that we can help to put forward to help uh, referring physicians um, make that determination? The bottom line is um, if a provider thinks the eczema is severe, that meets criteria. Mm -hmm. uh, now, um, so I think it's important that people don't modify their practice, um, but Guidelines do give a little bit more guidance, mm -hmm. uh, and that is that um, severe eczema should be persistent or frequently recurring um, and have the typical morphology and distribution. So mm -hmm. we should feel relatively com confident about the diagnosis. And um, in my own mind, uh, you know, um, the eczema should be refractory to sort of first line um, therapies. Mm -hmm. So, for example, um, a great proportion of the eczema that we see in primary care might well respond to a daily moisturizer or twice mm -hmm. daily moisturizer or an emollient um, or alternatively sort of a low dose um, hydrocortisone. Right. Um, and I think something like that would definitely not meet criteria severe. Mm -hmm. On the flip side, I don't think that every eczema you necessarily refer to a specialist. Right. So, uh, of course, allergy and dermatology see the predominant proportion of eczema in our own care network. Um, I don't think everything you would refer necessarily would meet criteria for mm -hmm. severe. So there's going to be some sort of su um, subjective um, middle ground right. there. Okay. It's good to know, though, that even just our opinion of it being severe meets the criteria that it doesn't necessarily mean these Absolutely. kids are being followed um, by dermatology or by allergy. Absolutely. Great. When we have a child with severe eczema, the guidelines recommend testing for peanut allergy prior to introduction. So should we as primary care doctors be sending serum peanut specific IgE or referring for a skin prick test? Yes, yeah, so absolutely you should be sending this peanut specific IgE. If a child has severe eczema or they have egg allergy in the absence of severe eczema, the primary care doctor should send the serum specific IgE level. If the level is less than 0 0.35, 0 0.35 units, then the child may introduce the peanut at home with a first dose of approximately two grams of peanut protein. It just flows off of the It's top. just right there, as, as you remember. <laughs> okay. I'll burn that into my brain. Exactly. So if it's greater than that? Yes, then uh, the child should essentially be referred to an allergist for additional testing and management. Okay. If it's less than, then that child can introduce peanut at home. Okay. Great. That's good to know because I don't think that's something that all of us are doing already in practice. So that's nice to know that we don't have to automatically jump to referring, that we can manage some of these kids first in primary care. Absolutely. So, great. Um, so if an infant tests positive to peanut um, with you know their skin prick test at allergy, should they then get tested for other food allergies prior to introduction, such as egg? I have a lot of parents who are sure. worried about this. Like once sure. they have one allergy, they're terrified of all other foods. Yeah, and I mean it's very intuitive to think that if a child has egg allergy and we're worried about peanut, why right. isn't it the other way around? Right. And um, really, these recommendations are very much evidence driven, and what they found is that the association exists whereby. Um, if a child has egg allergy, that they are at um, a high enough additional risk of peanut allergy that this sort of second step of testing with the serum is warranted prior to introduction. Mm -hmm. um, however, we don't have evidence um, 
uh, that's uh, robust enough at the moment to sort of expand that recommendation beyond mm-hmm. um, um, testing for peanut in the setting of an egg allergy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, the general recommendations from, uh, from our academy are that um, we don't uh, test for foods prior to introduction with the exception of, of sort of the topic that we're discussing right. um, today. And the reason for that is because um, there's actually a, a reasonable false positive rate um, with both the serum testing and the skin testing, mm. such that if we tested all comers prior to introducing foods, uh, the rates of false food allergy would be extremely high, mm. and um, and we'd be restricting foods that really need not be. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that is uh, sort of the reason that um, our practice in our division and, and across the country um, mm-hmm. is not to do any sort of panel testing mm-hmm. um, or other um, sort of uh, uh, food testing prior to, to food introduction, with the exception of uh, peanut. Great. And it's good news for the kids, too. Then less, less skin prick testing is always a good thing. It is. Our division chief uh, sometimes says that we need to sort of go back to what our grandparents were doing in terms mm-hmm. of food introduction mm-hmm. um, and actually um, um, give the children what we're eating mm-hmm. um, and allow them to experience those foods uh, as early as possible. Great. So the guidelines suggest feeding six to seven grams of peanut protein weekly over three or more feedings. So in practice, what does that look like? How should families even know what six to seven grams of protein is and how do I methodically put that through their their diet in the week? We're both parents, so. Absolutely, yes. (laughs) I know. Luckily, my my children both like peanut butter, um, so so I was lucky. But um, the way the parents want to do uh, introduction of peanut at home in terms of of a quantity is um, approximately two teaspoons of peanut butter. Okay. Um, I think... um, that's uh, probably the easiest way to get uh, peanut protein into a, a mm-hmm. child's diet. Now, obviously, you don't want to introduce um, any food until a child is developmentally ready for it, right. meaning that they're not going to choke or aspirate on that food. Mm-hmm. So uh, what we recommend is that um, the parents introduce a uh, sort of complementary foods, mm-hmm. um, starting with something um, simple um, and uh, uh, something that's a relatively um uh, a single food item. So for mm-hmm. example, applesauce right. or um, or oatmeal or something mm-hmm. like that, where you're dealing with a single food allergen, but it's not one of the top allergenic foods. Right. And that's simply to establish the child's ready to take that consistency food in a safe mm-hmm. way. Right. Once that has been established and a child's low risk, um, you can move right on to the allergenic foods. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I would recommend is if a child's on the younger side, I introduced peanut uh, for my son around five months. Um, I took the two teaspoons of peanut butter and I just uh, thinned it a little bit with water mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and then uh, fed it to him. Many families tell me that they're afraid to introduce peanut butter at home. And so what advice do you give these families? I've had some who tell me, can I do it in your office? Should I go mm-hmm. sit in the hospital cafeteria? They want to be mm-hmm. close to medical personnel. Is there any evidence that they should do that or mm-hmm. how do we reassure them? About- yeah, I get that question a lot too mm-hmm. and I understand uh, where it comes from. Um, and uh, the recommendation, you know, from uh, the academy and, and from our division is that for children who are either low risk or those children that in conjunction with their pediatrician have um, had the appropriate testing and been deemed um, peanut non-allergic, mm-hmm. uh, that those children introduce peanut at home. Right. Um, the reason we say at home is it's a safe environment. Um, if a parent were to choose to do it in some other place, that would be up to them. Mm-hmm. Um, but the recommendation is to do it at home. Great. 
Now, some of these families are telling me that they're worried because they have another child who has peanut allergy and they've had bad experiences maybe in the past with anaphylaxis, so they're a little scared. So what can I tell them in terms of what the risk is for their child if the sibling has a peanut allergy? Are mm -hmm. they also at increased risk for peanut yeah. allergy? Yeah, again, this is one of those intuitive things uh, where it makes a lot of sense that um, that we'd be more cautious with peanut introduction mm -hmm. um, in those siblings. Um, the truth is the studies haven't really been definitive in that mm -hmm. regard. Um, show, some uh, studies actually show uh, a lower risk um, mm -hmm. in uh uh, patients with peanut allergic sibs. And so based on that, uh, the practice um, that we recommend is, um, is, is introducing those foods as you would mm -hmm. um, any other child. Great. Um, once we do have a patient who's diagnosed with a peanut allergy and we've sent them uh, to allergy, how frequently do you guys retest them and how often do you actually see them outgrow it? Yeah. So uh, the, the frequency of outgrowing food allergies in general is higher when children are younger. Mm -hmm. And so when we establish a diagnosis of a food food allergy, we, re we recommend yearly follow-up um, for that patient in our clinic. Um, and typically when we're dealing with younger children, say less than five or seven years old, we'll retest them every year. Mm -hmm. And if that test, side diminish test size diminishes or goes away, then um, depending on the food, uh, we might recommend a food challenge mm -hmm. or, or introduction of that food. Um, as children get older, uh, unfortunately, uh, they're more likely to keep those allergies. Mm -hmm. um, and so, for example, in, for peanut in particular, only taking all comers, only about 20% of children with a peanut allergy will outgrow it. Okay. And so for something like that, if somebody's getting into the seven, eight, nine years of age, we might delay that testing to every two years mm -hmm. uh, or more. Um, but we still recommend seeing the patient in clinic every year um, mm -hmm. just to make sure they're doing well, there haven't been any accidental exposures, mm -hmm. et cetera. There's also a lot of comorbidities that go along with food allergies, mm -hmm. such as allergic rhinitis and asthma, et cetera. And so mm -hmm. we can also potentially help with those yeah. conditions. And I'd imagine that the teaching you do with the patient increases as they're getting older and they're spending Absolutely. less time with their parents and more time independently. Yeah. They have to take some ownership over avoiding peanut containing sure, products. Sure, sure. The transition sort of into high school with more independence and then mm -hmm. ultimately to college is one that does require a lot of, uh, of anticipatory guidance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What's new with peanut allergy treatment? Are there any promising immunotherapy trials? I get a lot of questions about this actually from patients who sure. are hoping that there's that you have some hope to offer them and they Absolutely. want to know what's down the pipeline. Yeah, so it is an exciting time in allergy, not only because of these recent trials that have shown we should be introducing allergenic foods um, earlier mm -hmm. in, in low-risk individuals, but in addition because there are a number of clinical trials currently underway across the country, including at CHOP, um, looking at um, sort of controlled introduction of al allergenic foods uh, in patients that are currently allergic. So um, in our own uh, practice, we have clinical trials looking at uh, putting allergen under the tongue uh, or consuming allergen in very small and then increasing quantities. Mm -hmm. um, there's also studies looking at um, play, pacing, placing allergen on the skin mm -hmm. um, in a controlled way, uh, again, all in an effort to desensitize patients. And mm -hmm. um, um, I'm, I'm not at liberty to discuss the, sure. the outcome yeah. of those trials, <laughs> right. but, uh, but we are you know, very encouraged um, that we're going to have new FDA-approved approaches in the next couple of years. Great. And when those trials are published, we will have you come back and tell <laughs> That'd us That would be the great. <laughs> I'd love that. 
So there's been a lot of media coverage about EpiPen costs, and we often hear this complaint from families. Are there ways to help subsidize the cost of EpiPens for families who have large out-of-pocket expenses? Yes, absolutely. This is another issue that's gotten a lot of um, press recently, and it's mm -hmm. an important one. I would say there's a couple of, of options. So firstly, there are generic forms of the EpiPen that are available, mm -hmm. and um, sometimes these can be uh, acquired at a lower out-of-pocket cost. In addition, the AvaQ, which is the major competitor to the mm -hmm. EpiPen, is now back on the market, and the manufacturer of the AvaQ currently is running a, a uh, incentive of sorts, mm -hmm. whereby families can go to the website and uh, and directly have that AvaQ sent to them from the company, mm -hmm. again at a discounted uh, cost. Um, Oftentimes, there are also sort of coupons available mm -hmm. in primary care sites or with allergists, and we're always happy to provide those, though I think probably the easiest way is to work with your allergist or your primary care doctor to make sure that you are using the EpiPen or the AvaQ that's uh, covered by your insurance mm -hmm. and by going on the websites to see if there's any promotions that are currently available. Great. And they need to get a refill every year on their EpiPens, typically? Yes, that is the recommendation. Okay. I've heard that you guys have a nice new, maybe bigger food challenge lab. Um, and so when we have patients who maybe have an allergy sure. and we refer to you, um, kind of tell us about when you food challenge kids and, and what the process is for referring to you. Yeah, so we do somewhere between six and eight food challenges a day. So oh. we're one of the larger center for food challenges. And uh, food challenges is a very important sort of aspect of, of allergy in general and food allergy in particular. Um, in that it is sort of the definitive way to say whether or not a patient is or is not allergic to a food. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we uh, do have a new facility. And like I said, we do go up to eight patients uh, a morning now. Uh, patients are asked to come in sort of first thing in the morning uh, so that they can be finished with uh, the challenge by around noon. Mm -hmm. um, and any sort of additional observation time is sort of built into that. And uh, if uh, child were to be allergic, they would work with their allergist to determine when the best time would be to do a, a challenge to a food. Great. Sounds great. So we can refer specifically um, to the Division of Allergy and Immunology for these patients, and we will link to them on our website. We'll also put some links to the studies that Dr. Hill mentioned so that everybody can find the LEAP trial and other things there. Thank you so much for your time today and for joining me. This was very informative and this is very exciting new research that I think impacts primary care on a daily basis, I would say, um, that we see these patients and talk about introducing foods. So uh, thanks so much for sharing with it's us. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash pcppodcasts for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.